But uh, let's go from that video about the persecuted church to a story where I feared persecution, but I got the opposite. I went to high school at the tail end of the period in the uh, 70s called the Jesus Revolution. Some of you recently saw the movie by that name. My faith kind of took off <clears throat> during this time of revival among youth, uh, um, yeah, youth all across North America. With a growing passion to serve Jesus, I led the high school Christian fellowship group at my school. It was awesome. Now, you know that the role of vice principals in schools, they're the enforcers, right? They're the ones that deal with you when you're in trouble. And in my first encounter with the vice principal of my high school uh, was when he called over to me and said, hey, you, Jesus person, could I have a word with you? <clears throat> I kind of froze. I didn't know how to respond except to, uh, yeah, go listen to him. He asked me to ask my Jesus people not to put Jesus posters and stickers on the walls of the school. Yeah, that was a thing back then. And uh, yes, I would have a word with the group and see what I could do. Now, the VP and I bantered a little bit about this Jesus people invasion in the school. And I ended up just labeling this VP as anti-Christian, maybe even a persecutor of uh, Christians in the school. I mean, we weren't the only group that had posters up. Well, this was a time when things were getting heated between teachers and the government over wages and working conditions. And for the very first time in Canadian history, teachers in Toronto were going to take action against the government and go on what is called a, a work to rule. This had never happened before. And what that meant is that teachers would do the bare minimum. They would turn up at class, but no sports, no clubs, including our Christian fellowship, and to the joy of us all, no marking of homework. On the day the work to rule started, I got a message from that vice principal. He wanted to see me in his office. Messages like that never feel great. What have we done now and what was I in for? Well, what I was in for was a huge surprise. The VP told me that since he was an administrator, he was not on work to rule, that he could be the sponsor for the Christian Fellowship Group and we could keep meeting when every other group had shut down. I was incredulous, speechless. And I asked him, why would you do that? And he told a story about a student named Margaret. Margaret was a girl who had been invited to the group and as she spent time with us, she became a Christian. She invited Jesus to come into her life. Some of you uh, might uh, remember the story uh, of uh, of the girl who had prophetically yelled at me at Queen's Park, uh, uh, just across from the legislature there in uh, downtown Toronto when I was in university and she yelled out, Douglas Doyle, you know that God has called you to be a pastor, not a teacher. You, you know what, what uh, God has, has said to you. Um, and, and that's the last time I, I ever saw her. Yeah, that's the girl who became a Christian in my high school through our group. And the VP said to me, since Margaret has started attending your group, she's totally changed. She used to be the toughest person that our guidance counselors worked with. She was one hard case. I, I don't know what happened, but she's totally different since she started attending your group. And so whatever you're doing, I don't want it to stop. I mean, wow, how cool is that? I mean, I, I was blown away. And then he added, by the way, when I call you a Jesus person and, and push your buttons, be proud of who you are. Come on, stand up for your faith, don't back off. And then with a smile, he said, just don't put any Jesus posters on our walls, okay? Okay, and that was it. 
In Toronto's first ever union action by teachers against the government, our student Christian fellowship group was the only group to meet for about the next month or so. What I thought would be persecution turned into an opportunity for God to show himself to a skeptic. The miracle of a changed life turned into a miracle of being the only after-hours school group to meet. And I learned so much through these encounters with my vice principal. I was too quick to see this as persecution. I learned that relationships matter. And don't violate relationships by putting up Jesus posters around the school. And don't call the prohibition on Jesus posters persecution and don't cower when the pressure is on. Sometimes a skeptic just wants to see if you really believe what you say you believe. Oh, oh and, and let God be God because he's powerful. Now today, we're going to look at another story in the book of Daniel that deals with persecution. It's the fourth message in our series, Thriving in Babylon. As I've said before, uh, Daniel and his friends pick their battles carefully. They don't try to impose their biblical values on non-believers, but when non-believers try to impose their values on them, oh, that's, that's another story. That's where the line gets drawn. And, and what we're going to see today is that Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego, drew a clear line. Or if you grew up with Veggie Tales, that's Rack, Shack, and Benny. You might remember them. Veggie tales might be a bit dated, but if you got young kids, there's still a great way to teach them about the Bible. So the story of Rock, Shack, and Benny and their ordeal in King Neb's fiery furnace is probably the best-known story of the Bible. We read in, in Daniel chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar decided to construct this vast, maybe five stories tall, tower over Babylon. It was actually an image of himself. We read King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, uh, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. You'll remember last week, if you were here or maybe you watched online, that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and Daniel told him that he was that head of gold. Here's what I think is going on. Nebuchadnezzar is obsessed with himself as the head of gold, but he's totally ignoring the full meaning of the dream. He's totally ignoring the reality this was probably a prophecy that, that his kingdom was about to come to an end. I mean, he, he's one narcissistic king. I mean, it happens to world leaders. Won't name any, but I'm sure some come to mind just saying. And, and Nebuchadnezzar wants to consolidate power to try to ensure that he stays king for a long time, maybe even forever. Maybe this is his attempt to defy that dream. And what he does is he attempts to harness the power of religion in order to create an all-powerful totalitarian state. And he does this by making the state and himself the object of worship. 
What he wants to do is he wants to make the state God with himself at the center so that the state or the leader of the state becomes all-powerful as he declares himself to be God and demands full allegiance from all the people who live in Babylon. Throughout history, we've seen this over and over in communist Russia, China, Cambodia, probably North Korea is the starkest example of this today, some Islamic states, and there are more totalitarian states that kill Christians today than there have ever been, more martyrs than ever before. In the past year, 360 million Christians, or one in seven believers around the world, have suffered significant persecution for their faith. Every day, an average of more than 16 believers are killed for following Jesus. There are close to 6,000 martyrs a year, and more recently that has been growing by 24%. We see what's happening in these situations and what happened in the book of Daniel as extreme. Most of us uh, will never have to face the ultimate penalty of standing up for our faith. But you know, we do live in a time when the state, be it Canada, the U.S., Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, are increasingly acting as if they are God, imposing values on us as believers that, that we don't hold to, and, uh, in, you know, just increasingly governments of Western nations are declaring various faith groups as evil and replacing Judeo-Christian values with a, a new secular set of values. So the context of this story might have more application to us than what we might have thought. Our characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, face the hardest test of loyalty to God. The hardest test, really, that any of us could face. It was the ultimate values decision. On one hand, they could choose family, wealth, security, life itself. Well, on the other hand, there was God. What would you choose? I mean, seriously, think about it. What would you choose? Family, wealth, security, life itself, or God. Now, their lives have been on the line before. We saw that last week. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar made the decision to kill all the wise men, including Daniel and his friends. Their deliverance ended up totally depending on God. Only God could do this by revealing the king's dream to them. But this time, it's different. They could simply save themselves by bowing down to an image. But was it worth it? I mean, that's the question. Is there really something more valuable than human life? Especially when that life is like my life and your life? Think about it. I mean, imagine being one of those men and having to explain your situation to your family and friends. It's easy to see how they might have, you know, worked at trying to talk you out of opposing Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> you can, excuse me for a second. You can uh, <clears throat> hear the pushback from your family and friends. Come on, guys. We know he's not God, right? So what does it matter if you outwardly bow down to him? No big deal, really. It doesn't mean he controls what you think and what's in your heart. And hey, if good men like you in such high positions of authority, you know, uh, refuse to bow down and you get killed, how can you continue to have this power of influence you have? We need you there in the corridors of power and 
Think of your wife and your kids. I mean, you are better alive than dead. Come on now. It's no big deal to bow down. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that this was a big deal, that this is where they did have to draw the line. They were not prepared to compromise. Sure, bowing down was just an outward gesture, but it was a gesture designed by Nebuchadnezzar to express acceptance of his idolatrous regime by renouncing any other god. And these three friends were not prepared to do that. They weren't going to do it at any cost. And can you imagine the, the mental anguish they must have gone through as they wrestled with this decision, as they thought about the impact that this would have on their friends and especially their family? And, and let me pause and make a key point here. You know, the old Sunday school lessons that some of you had on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is totally valid. Courage is an essential quality of those who would shine in Babylon. And it takes courage to shine for Jesus in this Babylon we call Fort McMurray. And as time goes on and as our world gets darker and increasingly anti-Christian, it's going to take a lot of courage to shine and thrive in Babylon. Back to our story. This is a huge, extravagant event. And the event appeared to be an unqualified success. We read, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language <clears throat> fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. My guess is because of the sheer size of the crowd, that the king had not noticed three guys who remained standing while everyone else fell to the ground in front of the golden image. But yeah, that situation is not going to last long. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, Pipe and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And uh, whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing fire. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. You hired these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you. Your majesty, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Notice, it was the astrologers. Those guys who Daniel had outplayed in chapter 2. We see a clear case of anti-Semitism rising as it has throughout the centuries. Heck, these astrologers had their lives saved because of these Jewish guys. I mean, how's this for gratitude? And they falsely accuse these three of paying no attention to the king. That's false. But do correctly say that they did not fall down to worship the king. And the king just reacts. He goes into a rage at the idea that these three would <clears throat> defy him. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these uh, men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, 
If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And friends, the gloves are off. And Nebuchadnezzar lets slip what this is all about. Who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? In other words, I'm going to show you who God really is. <clears throat> In the previous chapter of Daniel, we saw how Nebuchadnezzar himself fell down before Daniel and paid homage to him for interpreting the dream. All that was forgotten as he raged at the three young men. But he was in for a shock. They refused. I mean, this is so powerful. They refused. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to, the, replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Again, we see that courage is core to this story. And here's the kind of courage that you and I need to have. I've stolen this from Steve Furtick from Elevation Church. What is Christian courage? What is courage conviction? I believe that God can expect that he will, but trust him if he doesn't. It's on the screen, so let's say it together, all right? I believe that God can expect that he will, but trust him if he doesn't. It don't sound very convincing, so we got to do it one more time. I believe that God can expect that he will, but trust him if he doesn't. Let's unpack that a phrase at a time. Christian courage believes that God can. All the other thousands of people out there on the plane are thinking, look at how small and piddly those three young men look next to Nebuchadnezzar and all his mighty soldiers. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thinking, look at how puny little old Ned looks next to God. This is where courage begins. God is bigger. He's bigger than our problems. He, here's a song we used to teach in Sunday school. Don't think it's on the list anymore. It goes like this. Some of you will remember it. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He is bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's watching out for you and me. Some of you remember it. I can see it. Yep. Great song. It teaches the most basic principle of faith. God is bigger than your problems, any of them. He's bigger than cancer or a lost job. He's bigger than a broken marriage. He's bigger than your friends. He's bigger than your sin, bigger than your shame, bigger than the grave. Next. Christian courage believes that he can. Okay, I'm going to get you to say this to your neighbor. You're getting better at saying things out loud. But say to your neighbor, I believe that he can. All right, would you do that? Come on, you can do this. No, yeah, not too bad. I believe that he can. And then Christian courage expects that he will. Notice their words. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. How did they know that? Little secret. They didn't. You see that in the next phrase. But if not, 
You see, they didn't know how this was going to turn out. They had no direct promise, no word from God telling them what would happen, but they had this suspicion in their heart that, that God would deliver them because they understood God's goodness and, and his willingness to showcase the glory of his name. Friends, this kind of bold faith just doesn't believe that he can. Bold faith expects that he will. And of course, this is not to say that God is like a magic genie lamp whom if you rub him the right way, he will give you what you want. Sometimes God in his goodness tells us no or tells us to wait. It's just to say that here in this story, as we see in multiple times throughout the Bible, God rewards those who take a dare on his goodness, who step out in faith and expect that he will. So my question for you, where do you need to take a dare on God? Maybe reaching out to share your faith at work or school or invite someone to Fort City, even though it's awkward. Maybe it's calling that estranged family member, even though you aren't sure how they'll respond to your offer of forgiveness or your asking for forgiveness. Or confessing or pornography habit to a trusted friend, even though you'd rather keep it concealed. Maybe it's a financial gift God is putting on your heart to make, but it scares you to death. Will you take a dare? All right, I'm going to do this one more time. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, I'm not sure, but I expect that he will. Can you do that? I'm not sure, but I expect that he will. Well, you're getting better at this. Even though I made some of you uncomfortable, you're doing okay. Finally, Christian courage trusts him if he doesn't. The greatest words in this story are these. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Those are awesome words. These three young men believed God was not only big enough to protect them from Nebuchadnezzar, they believed that knowing him was better than anything they'd ever have to give up. Friends, here's what I want you to see. Courage believes not only that God is bigger than the opposition, but also better than all alternatives. You see, here's the thing. Sometimes you take a stand and God delivers. But sometimes you take a stand and God lets you suffer, just like he did, as we see with the communion elements that are up front here. The question you have to ask is, if he lets you go into the fire, is he enough for you? Is he enough? See, the only way you'll, you'll have the courage to suffer for what is right is if you believe Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough whether he delivers or not. Well, good old Neb is totally inferior, infuriated over the stand Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just took. He's raging. His face contorts. He has the furnace stoked up seven times hotter than it was. So hot that when he has these three young men thrown into the fiery furnace, that as the guards are throwing them into the furnace, the heat from that furnace kills all the guards. Instant combustion. It's that hot. And everybody expected that these three guys would just be instantly incinerated as well. Let's read what happened. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, 
I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Who is that fourth man? It's pretty safe to say from what we read in the rest of the Bible that this was Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Yeah. There was a fourth man in the fire with them. And because of that fourth man, they came out of the fire totally unharmed. Take a look at the communion elements that are up front here. The bread represents the body of Jesus nailed to the cross for our sin. The, the juice represents the blood of Jesus that watches us clean, sets us free. This whole scene of a fourth man in the fire is a prophetic picture of Jesus going to the cross. Friends, Jesus was thrown into the fires of judgment with us. And because he did, we come through judgment totally unharmed. The Apostle Paul says, There is therefore now condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The hair on our head is not singed with judgment. Our clothes are not burned. He took the flame so that we could emerge in safety. Hey, the only thing that gets burned is the ropes that hold us in bondage. Let me leave you with a statement from another great preacher. The God who died for you in the fire is the God who can keep you in the fire. Friends, we do not ask for a faith that will keep us from the fire, but for a faith where God is with us in the fire. The presence of Jesus was with these three young men in their furnace. And friends, the presence of Jesus will be with you in any furnace you find yourself in. The God who died for you in the fire is the God who can keep you in the fire. In a moment, I'm going to, I'm going to pray and then invite you to respond by coming forward to receive the communion elements. It's Thanksgiving weekend and all of the things that we need to be thankful for it is this gift of Jesus to us. If you call yourself a Christian, you know and worship Jesus, uh, in a moment, please come forward as an act of worship, as a public statement of your faith. Come and visibly receive the elements of Jesus' body and blood and then bring them back to your seat. And then at the seat, will you eat the bread first and drink the juice afterwards? giving thanks to God for being with you in the flames and promising you the gift of eternity. But before you come forward, let's look at how the story ends. Let's continue to read. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. That's quite the ending, isn't it? And with that triumphant ending and I'm going to invite the servers if they would come forward and, and take their place up front here. As they come, would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Father God, on this Thanksgiving weekend, I thank you for standing in the flames with me, whatever I'm going through. And more than that, I 
Thank you for taking the, the fires of judgment in my place on the cross. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of salvation that powers, empowers me to live and love well now and forever. As I come forward to receive the communion elements, I, I make a commitment to live like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, choosing carefully when to draw that line, but to courageously draw that line when the time comes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.